Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. BT Sport Pods. Hi, welcome to Michael Calvin's Football People. I'm joined by John Cross of the Daily Mirror and by the broadcaster, Anne-Marie Batson. The Champions League is back. It's already cost two managers their job and even Jurgen Klopp is looking over his shoulder. It's football's cash cow with superannuated heroes and villains. But how do the other half live? I've been to see Accrington Stanley owner Andy Holt He's set an annual budget of less than £2 million in League One. Chelsea, by contrast, spent a record £271 million in the transfer window before sacking Thomas Tuchel. John, despite the move for Graham Potter, which appears to make some sense, have they more money than sense? Well, they do appear to have this summer It's been a crazy whirlwind few months for Chelsea. And really the new ownership, Todd Bowley and and his partners really have just thrown money at it. It's been a supermarket sweep, it feels like to me, since about May. And if you look and trace the results really of Thomas Tuchel since the whole kind of takeover began, clearly they've not been good enough. And you can just feel his resentment, frustration, call it what you like, really grow over the last few weeks and months, can't you? And a manager who was, you know, rightly praised in the spring for his attitude towards everything that was going on, Roman Abramovich, you know, the reaction, the way that he held himself, you know, after the invasion of Ukraine and everything that went with that was just remarkable. And it feels like we've lost something of a football statesman here in amongst this, which is a great shame. But it also feels as if they've just been intent on change and change for change's sake, really. I do think it's brutal. I think it's harsh. It's 17 months on since he won the Champions League, but it's not been right. It really hasn't. Results will tell you that. Tuchel's remarks and comments will also confirm it. And I just think change was almost inevitable. There have been so many changes at the top. I just think they, they, they wanted to bring their own man in. I guess it's refreshing in the direction that they've gone for in Graham Potter because he brings a different, completely different dynamic and different change. And maybe that will prove to be a good thing in the long term. But it doesn't feel very easy. I'd be a little bit worried as well as being excited if I was Graham Potter. <laughs> well, I suppose even those close to the new regime, Anne-Marie, talk about you know the impulsive nature of some of the decision-making. I suppose Graham Potter has no option but to trust that it's a serious long-term project. And what a rapid rise for him as well. If you hear, you know, reading his backstory, where he started going to Ostersons and now at Brighton, now potentially at Chelsea, which, as John rightly says, it looks like it's going that way. He's a manager who really likes passion and fight from his players. And he's going to have to somehow pull that out of Chelsea right now because they are in the doldrums. And I think... Being the Brighton manager, he's been able to develop the team over a long period of time. He's had two, three seasons to shape it in the way that he wants. He's not going to get that at Chelsea. He's clearly a really, really good manager, but I do believe he needs to go to a club where he doesn't have that pressure on his back. And I'm not sure Chelsea's the right club in that. I get the attraction of it. You know, it's a huge club, the chance to play in Europe, the big names that are going to be there. My dad's a massive Arsenal fan, but he really loves Graham Potter and what he's done at Brighton. He's really excited by them. He calls them his his second team. And 
I can see why Chelsea would want to go for somebody like Graham Potter because he's got a lot of credit in the bank. I'm just not sure with Chelsea where they're at right now. And John used those words like statesmanlike if he's the right fit for the club. I suppose where he is a very good fit is that there seems to be a void that needs to be filled at the heart of the club. And I'm thinking in terms of the, the key figures of the Abramovich regime, you know, Marina Granovskaya, Bruce Buck, Peter Cech especially, have all gone. So there's no sort of senior management to whom a manager or a head coach can relate. And even if you look a little bit deeper than that, I, I noticed there were other signs of fundamental change this week. Scott McLachlan, who's the head of international scouts, very, very highly regarded within the recruitment world. He's left the club after 11 years. So there is a big void to be filled, John. You know, we, we've spent a lot of time, haven't we, looking at Manchester United's dressing room culture. What about Chelsea's? Yeah, I, it's another worry, really. I'm just like Emery's dad, really. I've got so much admiration for what Potter has done at Brighton. It makes you sort of kind of fall in love with it. And part of that is the, you can see that clear relationship between Potter and his players. And I just feel as if that's going to be very difficult to transplant into a, a incredibly different international star dressing room, really. He's got egos in there. He's got players, let's be honest here, Aubameyang, who signed for Tuchel. He's got players who've bounced off Tuchel, who probably have enjoyed being associated with, I mean, rightly or wrongly, one that we call football elite coaches, really. Does Graham Potter sort of kind of fit into that category? No, he doesn't really. He's sort of on the up and up. And I, th I do think there's a sort of a tendency to say, how will he manage those egos? How will he manage those big players and personalities? Players like, I don't know, Wesley Fofana, who basically went for £70 million, probably didn't expect to be managed by... Graham Potter when he signed, you know, just over over a week or so ago. And it's the same for Koulibaly and it's it's the same for a few, really. I, listen, I, th I think he can, he, he can win them over with his coaching ability and his personality. He's such an enjoyable character, isn't he? You spoke on, to him on the show. He engages you, got humility. He's a humble guy. He speaks so well. He, he, he will definitely, definitely get them on board. But it's just those, just that, you know, those early impressions, whether he can win them over. And I, th I do think that's a major factor in this. Will the players take to him? Will they Will they sort of kind of accept him in this? I do think he's clearly what makes him a brilliant manager. And I think he is a brilliant manager. It is that element. But it's a darn sight easier to manage, I think, Brighton players than it is that Chelsea players who really do. And that, that's going to be part of it. Yeah, well, I, you know, we all know, don't we, that dressing rooms can be unforgiving places. And, you know, it might be that the sort of players that Chelsea have, and but who, by the way, have been underperforming, you know, despite their, um, uh, you know, inflated view of their own self-importance in some cases, you look at them and they're not going to be impressed by someone who turns up with a degree in emotional intelligence, are they? What worries me, Anne-Marie, is when you have an owner quite openly liaising with some of the senior players. You know, we've heard that he's spoken to Aspilicueta, Thiago Silva, Rhys James. That never really ends well for the coach, does it? And I thought those days of player power, in inverted commas, especially from Chelsea's point of view, were long gone. It doesn't seem to be that way, does it? I mean, look... There is no harm in 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 terms of the the owner just having just a, a conversation just to get thoughts and ideas. But if it's a case the conversation's going, do you think he should stay in the job? Types of questions. I don't think that's a, appropriate. I don't think that's appropriate at all. I'd like to think that they would have talked about his methods, what wasn't working, what was working, but to put them on the spot and asking those very specific questions about whether a coach or a head or a manager should remain in their job. I don't like that at all that that should be something for the manager or the head coach and the owner to have discussions about amongst themselves but he you know you talk about the big star you know you've got world-class players in Chelsea they're going to have a view and they're going to share that view it's just managing that I think and I'm you know when Todd Bowley came in I really did think those days of making snap decisions making snap judgments had gone I'd like to think it's going to be a place where decisions are going to be considered rationalized all those kinds of things but it 
yesterday when the news broke, I was like, what? And then all these stories started coming out, like you said about Todd Bowley potentially having conversations with senior players and, and getting their thoughts and the unhappiness that was going on behind the scenes. It's not the Chelsea that I thought this was this club was going to be. And I, I'm probably being incredibly harsh because it's very early days of the Todd Bowley administration. But I thought this is a clean slate, a clean break, a new direction. And the last few days or the last six weeks, if we cover preseason as well, it hasn't been like that. It feels like Chelsea of old, very scattergun. Mm. Well, if you look in a wider sense, John, the Champions League, as I mentioned right at the start, has already cost two managers their job. RB Leipzig's Domenico Tedesco was the other one to bite the bullet. Now, even Jurgen Klopp gave thanks publicly for his, I think it was rather calm, was the the phrase he used about his owners. Now, uh, after that terrible defeat in Naples, the intensity of the microscope does burn, doesn't it? It really does. And that was obviously in response to a question about his, although it's slightly lighthearted, having heard it, about his own future in relation to what happened with Thomas Tuchel earlier. But look, there's something wrong with Liverpool. You know, I mean, Jurgen Klopp mentioned it himself and, and, and sort of said that. He said some of it we know, some of it we can, you know, we're on top of, we can solve and we know about and we'd like to think we'll be on top of it. The other issues are for me to solve. I, I personally think it's it's quite obvious, really. They're missing something, obviously, defensively. They've not got that solidity yet, have they? Joe Gomez has played a lot. You know, he was almost the full guy, it felt, last night. Clearly, there have been changes up front, although Luis Diaz is playing well, I think, personally. And the biggest key issue for me is midfield. I just don't think... It, clearly, they've had injury issues as well. But I just think, where are they going to go with this in terms of the midfield trio? It's easy it's sort of look in hindsight. But I wondered about this season with with Liverpool. And that's why maybe I sort of had them maybe finishing a third this season. Just because I think, they, you know, I think they'll come good, don't get me wrong. And I don't think it'll be a long-term issue. But I, I did feel as if, you know, they've kind of done a half-mini reset in certain aspects, so up front and defensively a little bit. And I just think, I think in midfield they needed something else and, and they've yet to solve the puzzle. Clearly they've got Milner sort of kind of filling in and other people filling in because of those injuries. But I do think that there's, it doesn't quite feel as if all the elements are right. The balance of the team and the balance of the squad, which is perhaps most important, are quite right for Jurgen Klopp this season. It's going to be a challenge. I couldn't believe that scoreline. I was at Spurs last night and following the other scores, as you do, and I just could not believe that half-time score. That just doesn't happen to Liverpool. And it's just, I think, systematic, I think, of a few problems going on right now. Mm. Klopp afterwards... You know, did say that Liverpool needed to reinvent themselves. I suppose the question is, Amory, how and is all this perhaps part of a burnout factor? It's a really good question. I, I think there's been murmurings of that, potentially that Liverpool have, have peaked. I just think they're just going through a period of change. I really do. And this, you know, I was watching that match last night as well. And I couldn't believe, like John, I couldn't believe the scoreline either. It was so unusual. I actually put it out on social media. Is this the worst start for Liverpool I've ever seen in the Champions League? And a couple of you said, yeah, they couldn't believe it themselves. I think it's, just, you know, they've had some big changes over the summer. I think Mane going, I think that's also a factor as well. And they're just going to have to work around that. Like most teams, when big players go on to other teams, they bring new players in. It's a time to bed them in work out their best positions and then take it from there. Liverpool are very good at adapting. They're one of the best teams to do that. They're just going through a bit of a dip, but they'll come good exactly like John has said, but it is that midfield. The question about James Milner as well and Henderson, they're not necessarily starting all the time now. They've got new players they can bring through to cover those positions, but it's there's no need to you know, press the panic button yet. Liverpool will be absolutely fine. Mm. Yeah, that's a collective issue. John, what about individuals here? Now, you know, I'm probably going to incur the wrath of Liverpool Twitter here, but Trent Alexander-Arnold, to me, speaking completely honestly, he looks completely lost. Yeah, he's, he's an issue, isn't it? There's a real issue there in that I don't know whether it's confidence, I don't know whether it's, you know, it's a run of form there. Clearly, his delivery is well. At the start of the season, his delivery was really good, and at the moment, his delivery is not is is slightly on on the wane as well. 
And I just think that defensively, if, if you look at it, I mean, it's almost felt like, uh, do you remember the opening game at, uh, at Fulham? When, uh, you know, people were almost afraid to kind of criticise, be brave enough to sort of say, well, actually, he should have basically stood his ground and, and avoided and blocked Mitrovic from getting the, the head on the cross. And it just feels like, you know, there's almost been this kind of, I don't know, defiance about sort of admitting that he, some of his defensive mistakes are, are, are really slipping in and getting worse at the moment right now. We all know his amazing qualities going forward. But there's, you know, there's clearly been an issue, hasn't there, as to why perhaps Gareth Southgate hasn't picked him for England. Defensively, you can get him behind. And I think he is struggling for confidence and it's showing in his play. I think it would be unthinkable right now to to drop him, to take him out the firing line. I mean, you know, obviously one of the sort of kind of contenders might have been Someone like Nico Williams has obviously gone to Forest now, and so you kind of haven't got so many options. And you've done that, you know, from a Liverpool perspective, because you think Trent Alexander-Arnold is so reliable, so good. And yet these are the sort of factors that you've got to think about. I think if there was, you know, Simicast pushes Robertson, doesn't he? I think over on the other side, perhaps more than anyone can do with Alexander-Arnold. I do think that's a factor. So they couldn't perhaps change it even if they wanted to. Maybe you'd change... Joe Gomez to right back for a more defensive option. But at the moment, I do think you can clearly see a player struggling for form and a bit of confidence, really. And that's just something which is so unusual for Alexander Arnold because he oozes quality and he oozes belief, doesn't he, in, in going forward. He sort of almost like steps up into the midfield. I think that's part of the greater problem is that he, he pushes so forward. Sometimes he doesn't play right back. He simply doesn't. And he's in midfield. But the balance of the team is fine and people switch across. And I think then you've got an issue with Van Dijk. Van Dijk's not playing particularly well at the moment. And I just think all those things together is making up for a very strange team dynamic at the moment. And that's when I say the balance of that team and the structure just isn't right. Something's missing. And I think that feels as if, you know, you probably got to restructure something in the midfield and, and, and maybe go two more defensive-minded players rather than kind of one plus two attacking players. Something like that, really. He's just got to get that balance right and quickly to protect the players who are struggling in, in a way. Mm, I, you know, they used to overpower teams with their intensity, didn't they? I noticed a, a, a fact on social media this morning where for the last seven games, Liverpool have been inferior in the distance the players ran, the speed of which they ran, and also the number of sprints that they undertook. So, so therefore, you know, that's the data. It's there. By contrast, Amory, Manchester City, well, they're just looking ominous, aren't they? Uh, let's just give them the title already. And I say that, <laughs> I say that before everyone goes, ah, it's so early. Yes, it's tongue-in-cheek. I know, but you're right. I think the, it's a great word, ominous, isn't it? It's just... It's just the sign of the investment that Man City have had over the years, haven't they? And, you know, it's they're just looking impenetrable. You know, you rock up to Etihad, you know what you're going to get. You know they're, how they're going to play. The fact they've got two or three now players in, in one position. It's just I don't see anybody being able to break down the force field, I call it, that is around Manchester City right now. I would obviously, you know, last season, it's definitely Liverpool were up there and, you know, potentially Chelsea were and then they fell away. But right now it is Manchester City, even though they're not sitting at the top of the table right now, they will get there at some point. And I think it'll be very hard to knock them off the top of the tree because they're just looking so strong, so confident within themselves. Europe's going to be the big test. Domestically, I don't think they've got anything to worry about. I think all eyes this season will be on Europe. Yeah, and all eyes will also be on Erling Haaland. Surprise, surprise. John, 12 goals already. Is he capable of beating the Dixie Dean record, 60 goals? You know, as bizarre as it seems, I think he probably has got a shot at it. Probably has if he carries on at this rate. I do think there's going to be a period, isn't there, where he'll probably go three or four games without scoring. It's just that rush. The one that I always think about is slightly in modern modern terms, if you like, is Clive Allen in about, mm. what was it, 87? What was it, 51? And I just think it shows, doesn't it, that can be, you know, it really can be done. I just think every everyone plays to him. There's no question of him being rested and rotated. 
his all-round movement is good and he gets himself into great positions, but he doesn't, you know, completely overextend himself during games. He knows what his job is and the, the, his teammates know what his job is and he's very, his very good at it. His movement is amazing, isn't it, John? Oh, honestly, uh, uh, you know, I know Guardiola carps on about sort of kind of all the criticism that he had after the Community Shield. So the Community Shield, I, I wrote at the time, that basically, although obviously he didn't score, but his movement was brilliant. His movement means that he will be, you know, he was always going to be an absolute, you know, phenomenon in the in the Premier League because you just can't pin him down. He's just always on the go. He's he's making angles, he's making movements, and he's just fantastic. It must be a joy to play with with their midfield and sort of attacking options because they've always got someone to to aim at. He's dropping deep, he's pushing on. He's he's just he's just fantastic the way he finds spaces. And I think that's his, his his greatest quality in amongst the kind of the power and the pace and the eye for goal. His, his movement is absolutely sensational. It's 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 above anyone else really, and that's the key to his goal scoring because he just finds these angles and spaces and opportunity, which earns him the extra time to to put the ball in the net. Yeah, you know, you speak of attacking options there in. In terms of Tottenham, Anne-Marie, John, I know you were there and we'll, we'll come on to your thoughts in, in a second. Richarlison, two goals on his Champions League debut. Does that give him the right to start? And how does Conte solve that sort of four into three equation up front? Oh, this is a tough one. So, you know, congratulations to Richarlison. Of course, I think that, you know, it's amazing for him, for the opportunity that he gets playing for a top four team and the chance to play in Europe as well. Yes, I think he's he has the right to ask the question. It's just whether he's he's going to like the answer, because Spurs do have a very good front three who work together, and I think they've got like some sort of telepathic bond between the three of them. They work, they click lovely together, and I think I believe Richardson will find that very hard to to break down. So yes, ask the question, but you might not necessarily like the answer. I think he will get the chance to start some games. I don't believe it's going to be every game, barring somebody getting injured, which we, of course, we hope doesn't happen. But he's shown what a quality player he is, and I like the fact the um, when Sonny was brought down yesterday, Richardson was right in there having words with the ref, you know, having words with the player that brought Sonny down as well. So he's got right in there. He's got a lot of fire. He's got a lot of passion, and I think he's going to give Spurs that extra lift as well when it comes to that side of things. But, you know, he, he's a player who likes being up front. He's a showman. Is he going to get that chance all the time in Conte Spurs? I'm not entirely sure. But, yes, ask the question, but be prepared to get an answer you might not necessarily like. Mm. What was the mood music like there, um, John? Well, it was, it was a strange run, really, because uh, first half, Marseille were really good, very well organised, incredibly well organised, very difficult to break down defensively and grew into the game. So they got better as the game went on, got a bit more menacing too, carried a threat. And there was a smattering of boos, would you believe, at half-time. It's the first time back for Tottenham in the Champions League after two and a half years. And the sort of kind of frustrations got the better of them. It didn't. It wasn't quite working. I mean, it was a strange formation. It was almost like 4-4-2 at times. Tottenham actually missed Kulazeski, who then came on with, what, I don't know, 20 minutes to go and basically did actually help change the game and open it up, especially against the 10-man of Marseille. The sending-off was the turning point and Spurs, then Richarlison scores twice, two goals, two headers in five minutes and, of course, everyone starts singing Conte's name over and over again. They they love the guy and I love the guy, to be honest. I think he's an absolute genius. I think, you know, some of their business this summer has been great and I think that they will go from strength to strength. But, I think the reality is they they haven't clicked particularly well. Some elements of that performance was looked a bit laboured, wasn't quite clicking. They haven't produced their best yet this season. I wonder whether they're kind of almost saving that for Saturday. That their habit under Conte to produce big performances in big games when he targets specific games and then sets up the team, you know, tactically. I mean, his record against uh, uh, you know the, the the top four rivals, if you like, is really impressive. I think that Spurs can can have a good season, but they've yet to click. There's no doubt about it. But I think when they do, they've got so many options that I think the biggest single factor for them at the moment that they're missing is a little bit more creativity in midfield. I'm not sure that the balance of that team is right just yet. So I think he needs somehow to kind of get Basuma in, 
you need to get a little bit more creativity needs to find someone with a bit more of a final ball I think then Spurs will just go from strength to strength I think it'll be a good season for Spurs overall yeah well the Champions League is the place of reality checks you only have to look at at Rangers and Celtic this uh, week to understand that and Conte did probably state the obvious when you know he said well to win the Champions League you need money speaking of which Accrington Stanley infamously went bankrupt in 1962 now history could have repeated itself but for Andy Holt he's built a progressive community club that's being run sustainably I began our chat with a simple question. Welcome, Andy. We're in your domain, you know, your new £4 million hospitality suite at uh, Accrington Stanley. The one question that always comes to my mind in situations like this is why would anyone want to own a football club? I mean, that's a great question. It's uh, it's one I ponder myself because, uh, in truth, I don't want to own one. I didn't want to own one in the in the first place. It was a case of uh, there were a club here that were suffering, real risk of it uh, going out of business, and somebody had to do something. And you know, I, I uh, well, I were advised by everybody not to do it, but I still did it because uh, I saw what it did for community. I saw what it did for the kids through community trust through the academy. I saw what it meant to fans. I talked to fans that were here uh, when it went bust in 1962 that still have a tear in their eye, you know, and they still haven't got over it. So, so it, it were really important that the club didn't go under. You know, it's funny that we were in a £4 million facility, but they didn't have any beer. They couldn't even afford to buy a beer for the club to get it going. And, and it's a fantastic club. It's a great community. They're, they're you know, they're a credit to the place. It's, uh, it's a small community, but, but it's, it's a great community. And... Uh, despite all the advice not to do it and all the ups and downs is probably as, as best as I can describe it. I'm glad I did it. I've had a lot of job satisfaction. I see it as a job, a job of work. And there's times when I'm sick to death of it, but there's times when, you know, I get a lot of uh, personal joy out of talking to. But all the joy you don't come from football, it comes from the people, it comes from the fans, it comes from, you know, it's having a pint. And uh, funnily enough, I, it, Another one of the reasons where I wanted to spend some time with my son, I've got quite a few businesses and I'm always at work. And uh, having a football club meant that every Saturday I'd be away with my son. So, you know, there's been a lot of benefits. You know, we've got some great memories. Great memories, but also great achievements. You, you know, you've had promotions. But football does always seem to be full of itself. It's all about, you know, the importance of the result. I'm interested in looking at the broader picture. You mentioned it in your first answer about, it's about people in the end. What means more to you, the pleasure that indirectly you've given, you know, the two and a half, three thousand people who turn up here on Saturday, or the actual, the achievement that's reflected in a league table? Well, this sounds bad. The, The league table doesn't particularly interest me. So I'm doing things over a fear of 50 year. I want the club to be here in 50 years, then I feel I'll have done a decent job. And in that 50 year, the club's got to go up leagues, down leagues, it might go into non-league, it might go into championship. So as I manage this club, I'm managing for, say, middle of the championship, between middle of the championship and national league. So the facilities are designed to cope with any anywhere in between that. And, and that's because in, in time when I'm gone, Club's likely to find itself anywhere in between that. So perversely, the facilities they've got work better the further down you go because the income we get from non-match day is a bigger percentage further down you go. As you get higher up, the TV cash towards it. Mm. So, so really the position, and, and, and I don't think, I mean, everybody gets carried away with this uh, football lark, but I don't think it really matters because you, you see it all the time. If, if you see a club winning, you know, Venkis at Blackburn, for example, got slaughtered when Blackburn were in the championship. They went down to League One, won League One, and everybody's happy. So in truth, if they're having a great day out, fans, so this is what our fans, I think Accrington fans are unique, because this is what they tell me, as long as they have a great day out, and, you know, they're not getting panned every week, you're being competitive, does it matter what league you're in? We are never going to win Premier League. 
no matter what it is. Because you go to many crowns and you know, the stewards are almost employed as prison warders almost, you know. Here it seems, you know, you, you let the opposing fans drink alongside your fans, obviously both wearing their colours, you know, probably against some regulation somewhere down the line. But I suppose, is the moral of that particular story, if you treat a fan like a human being, he or she will behave like a human being? Well, I mean, I was brought up you treat people the way you expect to be treated yourself. And I have to say, our fans don't get treated away as well as away fans get treated here. And stewards can be a bit overzealous now and again, but we spend a lot of time talking to them, so stewards are more likely to shake your hand than push you about, like you get at some clubs. It, uh, so we built, we built a real... It's a family club, and we, and we have a situation where people's anger is being broken down. As soon as they get here, they're being smiled at, being talked to, they're allowed to mix, they talk to each other, and uh, what everybody forgets is that our fans are both home and away fans, and so are theirs. They're all football fans, and they're all equal in my eyes. So they're all human beings that are paying to go and have a day out, whether they're at home or away, and they need to treat them right. It's embarrassing the way some clubs, for me, where, where they get shoved in a corner when there's better seats, and uh, you know we, we have a situation where if it's raining, they can go under cover stands and, or they can stay at rain if they want. And, you know, we, we're really relaxed about them. They can come in and enjoy all facilities. And why wouldn't you do that? People are coming spending money with you. It's different, I suppose, because in a lot of games, 50% of the crowd can be an away crowd. So it's, it's a major income stream to us in any case. But that's not why, that's not why you do it. You know, if I drove down to London to your house, I hope you'd make me a cup of coffee. It's like basics for me, it's just like basic. And I think when you don't treat fans right when they come to a club, you get in the bikes up before they even get near the stadium. You're getting pushed around and what have you. I have to say that we, we have a great local police force and great representatives there. And they work with us on all them issues. So we talk to them about mixing. They're in full agreement. They'll come in at the same time and uh, make sure we're not doing, it's not getting out of hand. And we have safety people involved as well. So it's not just a, an uncontrolled madness. When you look around the Football League and into the Premier League, what are the models, the club models, that impresses you? One as a businessman, but secondly as a football fan. Well, I mean, there's, there's a few. There's a few good models. And if you look at what uh, Carol's doing at Port Vale, she's doing a lot for community and, and it's, it's a part of community. I don't see many of the uh, Premier League as, as good models, mainly because of the way it's set up and mainly because the away fan at a Premier League club or the home fan isn't that great compared to its world audience. So they tend to, you know, they're happy to charge £5.50 a pint and £5.50 a pint because they're not bothered whether you buy them or not. You know, we, we're £2.50 after a win because we want you to buy them and we want you to come and enjoy the, the day with us. So, so we have to work at it and further up you go, the less work they do to look after fans. So, so my models really of, of, of our club is, I'd say ours is a good one. I'd say Port Bale's a good one. Burton's a good one. You know, there's a, there's a lot of decent, you know, really good clubs. I think Norwich is a good one because they're sensible. You know, the circumstances they've got going up and down year in, year out is what you'd do if you had any sense, otherwise you have to blow money like it's going out of fashion. And, and even if Norwich doubled the budget, not going to get to the top of Premier League and stay there. So they, they're in a competition that they can't win, so they've got to adjust their strategy to suit the circumstances that the crazy guys winning football create. You know, you'd have to be mad to do anything other than what Norwich are doing, and uh, we're similar to that, I suppose. We, we'll do best we've got with what we've got, and, and that's the end of it. Mm. So self-sufficiency is the key element for you here. How much is that on the pitch, i.e. the production of players that you can sell on? And you know, within any budget you have, do you have to sell, I don't know, two, three players a summer to keep it all ticking over? Well, in the early days, any, any cash that we got in from player sales was spent on facilities. And a year or so ago, two years ago probably now, I changed that so that now that any income that comes in can be spent on first team. We're way below everybody else in the league and we're even further below now because of our follow, but that's another issue. The cash that comes in can be spent up for steam. We've got the investment now. We generate as much cash as we can off the pitch. But selling players and letting players go is all part of the job. We can't bring 
kids in from non-league, we're looking at another couple now. We can't bring them in from non-league, we don't let them out at top. Whether we sell them or let them go, whatever we do, we can't have a million in squad. So as they come, if they come in, they've got to go out. And that's a fact of life. We have to lose them. So the ideal situation for us is that they come in at bottom and go out and get us a fee at top. You know, now a lot come in at bottom and go out for nothing at top or don't get uh, through the time. Mm. But, but some do get it to top and we get some income from that and that now goes to the first team. I mean, since we started Accrington, it, it had negative liabilities of over two million. That's got net assets of two and a half million. So it's like a four and a half million swing. It's a, a club with sound balance sheet and uh, a good playing squad. So, so that's the way I run it. Describe, if you could, your relationship with John Coleman. You know, you've just seen him over fish and chips. And here's someone who knows a player, steeped in the game. But the relationship you've got with him as an owner to manager, I think is unique. Can you describe it, that relationship? Well, I mean, I'd say it were tempestuous. Let's put it <laughs> that way. Uh, we have stand-up arguments, usually over cards on bus, something like that. But, but we, you know, after being here six months, Caller come up and said, I, I clash with a friend now. You know, for six months, it's like, who's he, new lad? And, and I suppose for six months, a lot of fans and a lot of community viewed me with suspicion. So, but after after six months, and I thought, well, actually, you know, I always thought you were a good, good decent guy all along. You know, I weren't waiting six months to, for a tick day or anything like that. But, but I, I, I was really pleased he said that, and, and I am, and I'd never let him down. We work on loyalty and trust. So he knows he can set his clock by me. And I know I can set my clock by him. But we're similar people, me and John. So we do clash. And, and it, it, it's, uh, it's a source of some amusement among the bus, let's say that. Let's put it that way, among players. Because he cheats at cards and yeah. I can't put up with it. So we end up arguing. But no, it, listen, him, Jimmy and John, the entire staff, it's, it's a credit to Accrington. What they've done, you know, that is without parallel for me. You know, they're over 20 years, not over 20 minutes. They've gone four or five promotions. They're competing in League One on by far lowest. We're one League Two on lowest budget. So, I mean, their, their track record at this club is, for me, it's without comparison. And it suits this club, so we don't have sporting directors or anything like that. I'm a believer that you get a manager in a business and they have to be like to manage. You know, and if they don't manage, then you've got to get somebody else that does. And so I don't believe I should be having a sporting director telling John who he's picking when he's got a track record for 20 years of picking players and getting all the promotions. So within his budget, he can please sell. I'm not interested. Apart from hotels, he, he's forgotten more than I'll ever know about football. You know, he, he well, it's just full credit to him. But I'm rest of the team. It's not, you know, it's not just John. You know, it's, it's a big team behind him, but... He does find them. We get them out in non-league and everybody says, how do you find them? And I said, well, I don't know, John does it. Mm. And I'm not, you know, people say, well, what would you do if John went? I don't think he would. You know, and if he did, well, we'd do whatever we'd have to do. You know, what would you do if I dropped dead? It, it, you know, things, life moves on. But there's no doubt what John's done for this club. And I've got utmost respect for him, even if he gets on my nerves up most. <laughs> to the wider football community, or no, I'll rephrase that, to the football establishment, it seems to me that you're regarded as a, a fully paid up member of the awkward squad. You know, you're not afraid to challenge either convention or you know, the latest edict that comes down from the EFL. What do you think of the way that football regards you? Do they think of you as some sort of misguided eccentric or a bit of a troublemaker on the quiet? Pain in the arse. Pain in the arse. And, and to be honest, you know, you, you have to break a few eggs. You know, you can't... I can make this club sustainable, but if EFL doesn't do its bit, this club gets into trouble like Bury did, like uh, Macclesfield, Bolton, Wigan. All them failures are down to EFL. Why is that? Well, I mean, what is the EFL? What is it about? I mean, it reverts to being a competition or organiser when uh, things go wrong. But, but, but what does it have to do? And, it, and it's, it's got to... You know, its basic core values have got to be about fairness, integrity at competition, decent rules to stop people overspending and more than they can possibly uh, pay, like they did at Bury. And, and if EFL does its job, the chance of that fail is slim. So if you get fair distribution, proper regulations, 
and fair competition, the, the chances of failure is uh, limited. Now, all them failures that we've had one after another, they're not coincidence. I told this idea we'll all fail at once. It's a result of a lot of years of mismanagement at EFL, mainly under Sean Harvey. There's no two ways about it. And I had this debate with Sean Harvey many a time, you know, and whenever I'd say to him, look, we need to challenge these rules. We need to challenge the way the Premier League manages distribution and controls rules and regulations at EFL because it's damaging to clubs in the EFL. You know, you can, this distribution was all the way to the top. It's a pyramid thing. When I'd say that to him, he'd, he'd say, well, Premier League won't do anything unless you give them something. That's all I've now to give. You know, I've got nothing to give them. They're getting hundreds of millions of uh, in media revenue. They've got all the best players. They've got all the best grounds. They, they've got everything and, and I've got nothing to give. So you're telling me to get any change, I've got to give them something. And, and that's kind of how B team started. It, it were kind of, EFL came to me and said, if, if you don't agree to B teams, you're going to lose revenue from uh, distribution solidarity payments from Premier League. So it's kind of a threat to do something that I believe in myself is wrong. You know, and I believe it with all my heart. Now, it's not for my benefit, because I won't be here when the damage comes. I really rate Rick Parry and what he's doing. I think he's, uh, I was skeptical at first. I thought he's ex-Premier League guy, be a waste of time, this guy. So I didn't even bother talking to him, because I thought, we're just going to not get on from day one. And uh, he came up here, you know, full respect to him. We had a three-hour chat about all issues. And on 90, 95% of issues, we were agreed. So we talked about the independent regulator and uh, the EFL backing an independent regulator. They were under pressure from FA Premier League to join them and sign a joint declaration that we're not having government involvement and regulators. And Rick went against it because he knows his problems. Mm. So great. But, but the, these failures, as it were, are all caused by the cash disparity between clubs. Is football's financial inequality. Not, you know, right, we're talking at a time when Champions League is, is on the horizon with the vast amount of money that that brings in to a certain elite group of clubs. You have a transfer window which has just exploded, record sums being spent, you know, without, in many cases, any apparent strategy behind it. If football keeps going like that, it's doomed, isn't it? Well, I mean, again, I've said this to Rick Parry in the EFL, the, the, the thread that holds the pyramid together is fair sharing of media income. But the tension is that the bigger clubs will always say that we are generating the, the demand from media and you don't deserve a share because you are not generating it. And that kind of argument has been there from, since Adam were a lad. You know, this is like back to founding at Premier League. We're the big clubs, so we want more money. That's where Premier League come from. And it still goes on today. The the, uh, the bigger clubs want all that money. And, and, you know, from day one, the EFL or the football, the old football league didn't stand up strong enough. Say, look, we've got to keep this pyramid together. Because our game in UK, for me, is better than the rest of the world. You know, everybody talks about Premier League being the best league in the world. But it sits on top of a pyramid that's best pyramid in the world for me. You know, you go and look at second division matches, which are effectively our championship matches, are brought the rubbish. You know, standards nowhere near enough. You know, you have a situation where championship clubs are losing up 500 million a year to support that. So their losses are keeping the game alive. You know, these guys that everybody's saying is mad, I think they're mad for making them losses. But if they don't make them losses, they've got no chance because of where distribution is set up. So, so there is that pulling apart of income, effectively, it's funneling upwards and you've got uh, the big clubs arguing for European Super League and arguing for Project Big Picture and all this carry on. And they're all, they're all about the same thing, you know, no matter what. And Rick Perry would say it's a good thing, it was a good thing, Project Big Picture, I don't agree with. It's all about them getting more voting rights, they want to stream their own games, they want... It's always, what can they have in order to do Hmm. Something. It's so, all about money, isn't it? It's all about money, and if you want to, if you want a bit of it, you, you have to kind of sell them something rather than them do it, because that's what's right for the pyramid. Can you look around here, and could you tell someone who's never been here before, and maybe never even watched football at that sort of League One, League Two type level, what the intrinsic attraction and value of a club like this is? Well. It, 
I mean, I, I could describe it best by, uh, I got a letter from, we've just had fish and chips, and I got a letter from Chippy, and, uh, and it said, Dear Andy, since you took over Accrington, Stanley Football Club, the crowds have gone up. I'm sold out on my fish and chips, and my business is uh, now solvent, and it was going down the pan. And you look at pubs, you look at local hotels, you know, the, the lift, that, that extra, I mean, what else would drive football into a place like Accrington? Mm. You know, there's limited things that we can do. It's a small town, it's, uh, you know, it's not Manchester, it's off the beaten track. It's a great community, they're great people, and, and uh, it's kind of, for me, it's, it's growing, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. You know, and if a club fails, like it did at Bury, Tigers out, you see everybody's ass. That's how it is, and, you know, a football club to a town like Accrington is massively important because Marks and Spencer's moved out to Accrington because there weren't enough footfall and, and towns die without footfall. So you need to keep generating footfall and, uh, and football clubs generate a lot of footfall for pubs. You know, you, you look, and, and hospitality and hotels, you, you know, you look at these Premier League clubs travelling with thousands of followers and uh, all hotels are busy. If you, if you take that away, a lot of them start to become insolvent. They start to not be able to trade. So it's crucially important financially, but, but there's another aspect, and that is the uh, mental stability of people. So when I'm talking to people and the season's on, they're happy. But when it shuts at the end of the season, they're like, what do I do? You know, this is me. I've gone every, all my life every week to a football match. And what do I do? And, and, you know, when I talked to guys from 62, when I could double close down and resign from league, they tell me how they felt then. You know, it's blatantly obvious what football clubs do in every town. And, and I think football club owners have to respect that. And I don't think some of them do. You know, it's just a, a big play thing. You mentioned 62 and liquidation there. You also mentioned, you know, names like Barry and Macclesfield. The way things are going, and we're entering, obviously, an era of huge economic uncertainty, you know, above and beyond football, can you see more clubs going to the wall? Well, I mean, there's, there are things going on now. There's, there's talks between Premier League and EFL to uh, sort that big gap and parachute payments and uh, get the distribution better. EFL are putting regulations in place that... Uh, they're not good enough yet. There's not enough of them. A lot of what they put in, I think, is fairly pointless. You know, there's basic ones. And it's difficult with EFL because you've got to get everybody to agree. Well, or a majority to agree. But isn't the inequality of football institutionalised within the EFL as well, simply because of the way the voting works in the EFL? So a Champions League club has got much more influence than, say, you in League One. Can you explain that to people who might not understand that or realise it? Well, well we, all, we all have a vault, so we all have what's called a golden share. So every club, the 72 golden shares, and you'd think that I had one seventy-second of the voting rights in EFL. And in theory, I do. In practice, I don't. So, so if we wanted to change, for example, the uh, distribution rules in the EFL that are wrong, we have to get a majority plus more than 50% at championship. So we have to get 13, if we, even if we've got 48 clubs of League One and League Two to be unanimous about any issue, we'd have to get 13 championship clubs to support us. Well, there's more, to, more than 13 think they've a chance of playoffs at Premiership. You've no chance of getting support. In the uh, EFL, when income goes above 100 million as an entity, and it's above that now, the distribution switches to as low as 90% championship, 6% League 1, 4% League 2. So, and that keeps driving the gap. So the gap between championship and League 1's grown by a quarter of a million. It's a bit technical, but... But our, you know, I suppose the subtext of that question was that, you know, it's, it's a hobby horse of mine. I think there will be a Premier League 2 within five years, maybe 10 years. In essence, elitism will win out and clubs like this will get left behind. I mean, if it didn't go down that path, not necessarily Premier League too, but clubs like this lose out, it'd be, you know, going against trend of any nation in the world. They've all ended up with 
a few clubs at top dominating and, and bottom struggling. It doesn't matter whether it's Scotland, it doesn't matter whether it's Italy or Spain or wherever you are. You know, there's a, there's a small number of clubs and uh, they want to control the world TV money. You know, they're owned by billionaires and they they see themselves as above everybody else. And it's it's a shame, really, because they do a lot of damage when they're not standing by the, the thing that created them. You know, Man City weren't always a good team. What God gave them a right of there to be at top. You know, so so they've kind of taken away the opportunity of any other club to get there. It's uh, I can't stop it. You know, I'm I'm if I'm honest, I'm sick to death of it. It's uh, I'm moving into a, a place where I'm uh, not getting involved in it now. It's got the assets. Chief executive and his staff will have to manage it within its budget, and and that'll be that. And I'll just come and match it and have a few pints with lad, which is what I wanted to do in the first place. Uh, I've no not got a lot of time to waste. Does the, does the politics of football grind people down? Well, I, I can only speak for me. It grinds me down. It grinds me down because I don't know what the core values are. I don't know what we're trying to achieve as a, as a board. So I don't know what the AFL are trying to achieve. I don't know what Premier League are trying to achieve. Hopefully when we get an independent regulator, we'll all know what we're trying to achieve. And then the whole football pyramid, National League right up, has to work within them core values and principles and then if everybody knows what we're trying to do you can judge success or failure but you can't when you don't know what they're trying to do in the first place because they can say well that's what we wanted to do you know it's like basics in business you 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 decide what the outcome you want and then you manage and uh, along that line you inspect that it's going down that path in football you know i don't know what they want to do i have no, no idea is it really something you know i've said to you in the past which is a bit crazy i know but i've said give me a Give me your next five or ten year plan and budget. I have one in every business I, I run. And then I can map hours against it. Because I need to know that what income's likely to come and what income's because it's so big a proportion of his income. And you, can, you can't get it. And uh, there's two things for me. It's kind of get a club that's running right and sustainable. And then you have to look at what it's operating in. Because no matter how sustainable you are, if you're being pushed behind, further and further behind, which is happening where I follow and the like. You just can't, you can't, you know, you can't stand up against the tide. You know, there's no, there's no to can do. You know, I can't, these, these disparities that, that keep coming, that's what an owner has to, you know, the 500 million that's being lost in championship, owners have to fund that, that gap. It's cash, it's real money. And to keep up, you know, and, and same for us, if they, if EFL give more, more to the bigger clubs, We've got to put more in to keep up, otherwise we just go further and further behind. Our wages end up being so far away that it's uh, it's difficult. But you know, I, I, that said, I'm a firm believer that our job in life is to find people from non-league and give them a chance. You know, that's what we should. That's what it should be about. We should be a, a, a framework that players can reach the maximum potential. You know, so so. Well, it gets on my nerves, EFL, you know, the outcome for us as a club is that we have to look, we've had them from Bognor Regis and Southport and all over the place, you know, Leamington Spa, and these lads, there's a lot of good players down there that are not getting a chance, and, and we, we are giving them a chance, and I'm proud that, uh, you know, people like uh, Colby came from Leamington Spa, we sold him on, Leamington Spa got a good, a good drink out of it, and I think that's working you know, football working properly. He's doing well for Ipswich as well, isn't he? And he's doing well. He's doing for Portsmouth. Sorry, Portsmouth, even. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's 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 doing great for Portsmouth. I spoke to him till the day, and uh, you know, I said, I'm proud of it. You know, everybody says, oh, he's, he's left Accrington and now he's playing for Portsmouth and uh, and doing well. But I'm proud of that. That's that's what I see as our job. You know, that's what I see as Corley's job. Uh, a club like Accrington is to, you know, you've got to bring him in because they're getting older. And you've got to let them out, and we don't want to let them all out on retirement. We want to be generating a bit of income and keep building what we're doing. Mm. As a as a final point, Andy, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about politics and money. I want to try and bring it back or down to what is really important, and that's the sort of humanity of football. As a football fan, as a dad, not just as a club owner, what's been your best moment in football? Can you give me an idea of the emotions you felt in that moment? Well, uh, the best moment for me by far when we beat Burnley, we haven't played Burnley 
in competition since 1893. And we played in a Cup. It was televised. Now we were my son. And uh, when we won in 120th minute, Matty Pearson goal, my son were at bottom and I were at top. I'm only 16, so it's not like I'm not, don't, <laughs> don't, let, me, don't let me give you the impression it's a long way. And I ran down and everybody thought I was going to run pitch. So the TV cameras uh, zoomed in. And I just went to give my son a hug and like come back up to my seat then. And uh, everybody's like, thought you were going to run on pitch. I'm not, I'm not a footballer, what I want to be on pitch for. And, uh, but Joe plays that, you know, from when he was a kid, he plays it and we look at it. And uh, it, they're like really special moments in mine and his relationship. But also when you take it further, a bit further than that, I'm just rolling out. We wouldn't League Two, not lowest budget. And uh, when, we, when we got promoted, it was Tuesday night against Lincoln, I think. And uh, we'd be a tent out there. So with Billy Key, and all I talk to him virtually every week, even though he's long gone. And all players, Mark Hughes and Shawnee and all of them, we, we ended up like, having a good drink in, uh, in there. And uh, it was about two o'clock in the morning. We had police phone saying, Can you calm it down? And no, oh, but you know, they just said, Everybody was singing. And it, and it were it just, you know, I were, I were just unbelievable times, you know, the memories that you can't take, you know, you can't buy that memory, you can't, uh, with all fans and, you know, they, they, I must have shaked a, a thousand hands that night and like I do every Saturday and we, we, uh, we had a ball. So, so there is real upsides and, you know, when I, Accrington's one of them, so when we've lost and we've played crap, you know, and it, like you do from time to time, every football club, you know, there's winning and losing in football. You know, I'm down and so fans come up and they don't, you know, come to me and they go, that's football. They don't ever go at me and say, but, you know, you need to spend more, you need to, uh, Kirill were down from Sunderland. We'll walk, I said, come on, we'll walk through fans on and talk to them. And they're all saying, you need to spend more, you need to do this. And, and fans don't do that with me. It wouldn't make a difference if they did. <laughs> but uh, they're like, you know, it's a great club and a, and a, and a, a great uh, great atmosphere and, and, you know, it's a party week in, week out. And we're just proud to have this club. We're just proud to uh, be able to come and tomorrow, but say, you know, after the match, we'll all meet and have a, have a beer. Because, you know, we have a boardroom and I don't go in boardroom. Mm. I, I go in with fans. I go in, uh, go in tent with them after the match. And, just have a pint and an atta with him for an hour, and they like that. You know, if there's anything to ask, I'll answer it. Because it's their club, not my club. I'm only doing a job. I only work here on their behalf. Yeah. So, so does that keep you here? I said I'd do 10 years, and I'll be honest, it's a strain. There's a few things I need to do that need doing here that I, that I, I really want to do that'll benefit club in long, long term. So... I'm kind of going to back out of the EFL side of it. I've no to do with them because they get on me wick. They just suck all the joy out of my life. And just get back to enjoying football and try and ensure that these things are done, that these jobs are done. And if, if I can do that, I'll be happy. Maybe I'll make 10 years. Maybe I won't some days. You know, you, you, just, you just feel like saying uh, you've done all you can. Not quite there yet. And if I can get to 10, I'll be happy. Uh, there's no promises. No promises, but hopefully a lot of enjoyment. Thanks, yeah. for, thanks for your time. Cheers, pal. Cheers. Thank you. Well, I must say I enjoyed that chat. What about your impressions of Andy Holt, John? He certainly has an alternative vision, doesn't he? He does. I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? He was referring to the importance of the supporter base above, let's be honest here, the sort of, you know, league table almost and results, you know, what it means to the community. I love the fact that you talk so warmly and so well about kind of welcoming in uh, in the fans, you know, for a match day, what it means, what it means to the football club, but also to the supporters there. And I think that he, you know, I thought he was really interesting on the EFL, wasn't he, mm. as a body? That was quite telling. It basically sort of along the lines of, I don't really care. I know they don't particularly like me. I might not be their kind of almost cup of tea identical of what a club owner should be looking for, striving for. 
but I'm going to do it because it works for us. And I actually admire that. I think that basically he's got his heart's in the right place and his priorities right. You know, he's obviously got perhaps mixed views, shall we say, about Rick Parry. Can see the good and the bad almost. But it's just, I just thought he's, I thought it was so refreshing to hear someone put the fans at the front, at the forefront of it. And I think if there's something that we can learn, definitely on the Premier League level, I think it has to be that. And I think it's interesting, isn't it, that a few clubs, fair play, have tried to sort of redress the balance, I think. It may, you could be cynical and say they've only done it because of the fallout of the Super League, and that's that's fair point. But I think at the top end, I think a few are trying to address it and bring back a sort of a connection with the supporters that has been lost but has never been more evident in, in a club like Accrington Stanley. Mm. Yeah, John talked about learning lessons from the approach of someone like Andy Holt, Amory. What can people in the Premier League learn from him, do you think? That he's an owner that's happy to speak publicly about the club, speak publicly about the fans, the community, results, the whole thing. He has a social media account as well, doesn't he? Which, and I think he tweets on a, on a regular basis. So I think you know, the one thing that fans, particularly in the Premier League, complain about is not hearing from the owners. Stan Kroenke is a great example of that. We hear from Josh Kroenke now, of course, a little bit more, and alluding to John's point, since the Super League, I would I would argue we hear more from the Cronkies in that respect. But I like the fact that Andy Holt says it how he is, says he how he sees it, and he's open and honest and speaks from the heart as well. And that connection that he has with the fans, and I and I think with some Premier League clubs, not all of them, and some Championship clubs, not all of them, there is sometimes that missing link between the fans and the ownership. And some clubs have made strides to change that, as John rightly alluded to again about the European Super League. But it's just so heartening to hear an owner really understanding the importance and reaching the hearts and minds of fans. It's so refreshing. And I'd love to hear that more from more owners who are happy to take it on the chin, but also talk themselves up as well about what they've achieved, what they're looking to do, about being sustainable, as he talked about in his interview with you, Mike. I just, you know, I loved listening to Andy. I could listen to him all day. And I I just wish more owners were like him, who are happy to put themselves front and centre of a club and talk about the club and understand how important the relationship is between the fans and the club. Yeah, well, he's certainly the only owner that I've ever come across who actually admits that he's not that bothered about the league table. You know, he's more interested, John, isn't he, in having a a viable club that can be a central part of that community in 50 years' time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, it is very rare, isn't it? The basic results are sort of almost secondary. And I think it's great. But I I actually think that that is only possible because, you know, I mean, he runs his club responsibly, right? It's self-sustained and it's there. But it's only possible to do that because when results flag or when results go down, the supporters understand and there's that connection there. If they didn't, you know, maybe given time, they'll become disaffected or, or whatever or kind of a bit more cynical or whatever. But there's no great signs of that happening anytime soon, which is which is fantastic. It's because they understand and they're in on it. They're part of the journey, aren't they? And I think that this is this is part of the problem. You speak to other owners in in in, in the EFL, and they will say about how kind of it's been an absolute sort of shocking ride, or you know whether it's on the back of a losing run, having to sack a manager, or kind of you know relegation. And I think that's because. They've had to take this decision to distance themselves because the fans are in revolt. They don't like what they see or whatever. But I think the difference here with Accrington Stanley is Andy Holt is is able to kind of keep them on side because they know exactly what's going on. They know that the ownership is there. They know how what direction they're in. They know what they're in for. It's almost like a sports club more more than just a football club. It's kind of just a part of that heartbeat in the community and. And I think that's the difference because they understand. And I think other fans wouldn't accept those comments and those uh, and those remarks never, never in a million years if they weren't on board with it as well and if they didn't understand and that connection wasn't there and so the communication lines weren't there. Yeah, well, we started talking, didn't we, Anne-Marie, about managerial instability in the Premier League and specifically at, at Chelsea. Yeah, 
you've there got the relationship between owner and manager at Accrington with John Coleman. Okay, Andy says he cheats at cards when they're on the team bus. Well, who knows about that? I would doubt it, but hey, who knows? But their relationship is built on mutual respect, isn't it? And mutual respect in football doesn't normally occur. No, as we've seen over the last few days, we've seen the fallings out of two high-profile sackings in the Premier League with Scott Parker leaving Bournemouth and Thomas Tuchel leaving Chelsea. That relationship between manager, head coach and the owner is really, really key. If you are not singing from the same hymn sheet, if you've got two different visions of where you want to take the team, where you're going to take the club, of course it's going to break down. And I, I did laugh about the fact that he spoke about is uh, you know the manager cheating at cards. It, you know, I'm sure that was a little bit tongue in cheek. But I, again, it's an open relationship in the sense of everything is spoken about openly and honestly. And if there is a difference of opinion, and then it's discussed and and see if they can reach some sort of common ground with each other but you have to have the two those two people on the same page otherwise it falls apart you know we talk about a lot now that how important it is about communication how important it is about relationship building relationships working together because fans will pick up on that won't they they'll pick up the frostiness or the the difference of opinion and worry about is that going to affect the team is that going to affect the club so again refreshing to hear it refreshing to hear that it is an open working relationship but as john rightly points out it's because the fans believe in the project they believe in the process if they didn't i think they'd have something to say about it and want the coach out the door as soon as possible if results don't go their way mm. well it seems that we've spent today talking about two separate games the pressures and priorities of the Champions League can't be logically compared to the challenges of running a small club in League One. Yet, when you spend time with Andy Hull, you realise what football's all about. Identity, family, community, continuity. He's building something substantial in humble surroundings. And Chelsea and others would benefit from employing some of the principles he applies. So, thanks to him and, of course, to John and Anne-Marie for their insights. Thanks also to you for listening. Please tell us what we can improve, and the best way to do that is by popping us a review on Apple. We'll be listening. <laughs>